I'm going to read to you from John, John's Gospel, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 22 to verse 30. We're taking up here again a look at the, the character of John the Baptist, who was the preacher who came just before Jesus and kind of paved the way for Christ. He was, as uh, Jeremy put it last week, he was like the motorcade before the king, the motorbikes that rushed down the street, blaring whistles, saying, move out of the way. That was John's role in the life of Jesus. But with, the reason we're particularly interested in John is because of his status as one of the three Nazarites in Scripture, um, these characters who are devoted to God in a very significant and special way, even from before birth, even from the womb. And so he joins with Samson and Samuel in the Old Testament as the third and the final character that's, whose story is explored for us in Scripture. And we've been thinking about the theme of Nazarites and what it meant for them to be devoted to God. Now, this particular moment occurs and uh, reveals something extraordinary about the heart of John the Baptist. As you see, his, his, uh, his popularity and the interest in him is beginning to wane because of the focus is shifting to Jesus. And it creates an opportunity for John to express what he's really about. And so I'm really fascinated in this passage. I think it's extraordinary. And the things he says are in many ways... Um, Deeply, deeply powerful and formative for us to wrestle with. So let's read from verse 22. It says this. That after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So clearly, Jesus and John have found the same patch of river to go about their ministries in terms of the baptizing. Jesus himself was not physically baptizing. His disciples were doing it, but they were preaching in the same area. And therefore, this, this sort of tension point arises. It tells us that now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they're discussing baptisms. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, so this is Jesus, say, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Father, I pray that as we explore this extraordinary account, Lord, I pray that, Lord, the words of John recorded for us in Scripture will be penetrating and powerful, Lord, to expose our own need to to gaze upon the glory of Christ and to be made smaller and find our joy and satisfaction in the beauty of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be at work now to do a real heart work in us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my general hope in the, in the series has been to seek to kind of awaken your 
your zeal. Awaken your passion for God. Um, I, I believe that our lives here on earth are, all of us, pregnant with possibility, with the opportunity to serve God. And that so much of what we do and become in our lives originates within a God-birthed yearning and longing that says yes to him and wants to offer ourselves entirely to him. And it's obviously the case that, that Christians don't always hold themselves with that posture, that, that it's possible to have a heart that sort of doesn't want to offer everything to God. And so the, the entire purpose of looking at this has been to awaken those kinds of desires. And it's the kind of desire you see, for example, in Isaiah when he confronts the Lord in the temple and the Lord asks the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And as he is captivated by and overwhelmed by a vision of the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, his response is, here I am, send me. And I believe that there come moments in the lives of all Christians when you have that opportunity to say, here I am, send me. When God awakens you to his glory, you see something of the beauty and majesty of Christ, the profound authority, the claim he has on you, and you have an opportunity to say yes to him. And then perhaps you get energized by the work and the power of God so that, listen to what, how David describes the energizing power of God in his life to do something extraordinary for God. He describes it in military terms in, in Psalm 18. He says, for by you I can run against a troop and by my God I can leap over a wall. And he goes on and says a little bit further, he says, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. It's an image of a man who's saying to God, my life is yours and God is empowering him in an extraordinary way with strength to do amazing things. And my heart is to all of us to say yes to this in whatever way God is speaking to you and calling you and setting you aside for his purposes. Now, all of that said, this particular episode or chapter in John's life begins to open up a vital theme, which I would think of as the, sort of the dark side of um, religious devotion, the dark side of zeal, the dark side of um, what it means to live your life for God. Many of you will remember um, that in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, there's a warning from God, speaking about our hearts in particular. And it says that in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. But just to say that your heart is in some ways a murky place, that the things that appear to be true about you may not always be true about you, that we have mixed motives, that our, our longings are always um, tainted in some way, that we have a longing to live for God, but there are other things mixed in there. And God says to Jeremiah there, I test hearts. I'm interested in the motives and inclinations of the heart, not just um, the actions of a person. And if we ask the question, look, if our theme is, is zeal, devotion to God, what is the unique danger that can lurk beneath the heart of a person who wants to live for God and do things for him? And I think the answer 
as it emerges in the story we read of John, is the danger of pride, and particularly of religious pride. Pride, um, of course, is not unique to religious people. Pride is the reason people turn their backs on God. Pride is the reason why we live apathetic lives. Pride is so often there in our resistance to the call of God. But the heart is such a complex thing. I think that's what we learn from that statement in Jeremiah. The heart is so complex that even something as good as living for God, being zealous for God, wanting to live a life for Him, being passionate about the things of God, even something as good as that can itself be tainted by religious pride. Now, what do I mean by that? What form does it take? Well, essentially, it's this. It's the love for recognition. Affirmation, the praise and admiration of others on account of your devotion to God. In other words, it's when I, I think when our passion for the Lord is, is, a mus, is masquerading and, and covering up what really lies beneath, which is a self-serving agenda, when really it's devotion to ourselves. Now, I don't think that this is a kind of side issue in Scripture. I believe that this is actually one of the chief, um, the chief things that Jesus himself uncovers through his teaching repeatedly in the Gospels. That in fact, if there is a certain danger in having an apathetic heart or a rebellious heart or no, no desire to follow God with your life, there is this equal and opposite danger Jesus shows again and again that can lurk in the heart of those who, whose lives on the surface of it are living for him. And this is what Jesus kept putting his finger on in his very penetrating way, his direct way. I'll read you a few verses that, that just sort of elucidate this. In John chapter 5, for example, when Jesus is speaking to the Jews, his contemporaries there, and he says to them, how can you believe? He asks this question, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe, in other words, when your religion has become more about seeking the admiration and praise of others than it is actually about God himself? How easy it is to displace a true and pure devotion to God with an interest in the praise of others. You seek glory from one another. Here's how he puts it also in Mark chapter 12 when he's lampooning um, some of the spiritual elite at the time. And he says, he said, um, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. He's really lampooning the very extreme version of, of this kind of religious pride in which those whose role it was to be the teachers, to be the pastors, to be the leaders spiritually, were enjoying their status, enjoying wearing unusual garments that set them apart from others, enjoying the special treatment when they went for, to, to dinner at people's houses, enjoying the honor that, that accompanied their status within the life of the community. And he said that the, the enjoyment of these things, he's saying, is the reason you're spiritually sick. And, uh, and, and just in case you think that that is something only perhaps pastors or leaders can suffer from, please remember how Christ described this in his Sermon on the Mount and how 
repeatedly in that sermon, he begins to hone in on and highlight the unique danger that can accompany the desire to serve God. He, He describes it like this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Isn't the heart such a tricky thing? For then, he says, you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Then he begins to open that up in the rest of that chapter, Matthew chapter 6. He starts to talk about giving. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. He's saying in all of these areas, and of course, you could, you could put your finger on any aspect of living for and serving God, that anything can become an opportunity to do it for performance sake, to perform for the, the, the admiration, the praise of others, and to enjoy the attention that comes from it. So the heart is a, is a messy thing, isn't it? Now, it then is so powerful to read this account of what happens in the life of John the Baptist. John is undoubtedly a uniquely special man. We've been exploring that. And uh, you can't deny that he is, he's one of a kind. But he also therefore had more, more reason to be, to be uh, animated by pride than most because he enjoyed a, a unique degree of attention and adulation from people, from the crowds. And he had, in many ways, um, distinguished himself by his life and his lifestyle. And so he is, in many ways, a kind of religious savant, someone set apart from, from childhood, a kind of prodigy in terms of his devotion to God. And then this instance occurs in his life when suddenly the tone and tenor of his ministry begins to to alter direction. That from being buoyed up by the enjoyment of of experiencing people listening and the power of God in his life and and having impact and having influence and having the opportunity to, to change the world through his unique calling and devotion to God, suddenly that begins to turn for him. And this moment occurs here when when he, people begin to ask him the question because they see, they see the crowds moving from John to Jesus. They're baptizing in the same region, it seems. And, and people are abandoning John because the newest thing has arrived and Jesus is, is even more amazing than John. And as people are leaving John, you can see and hear how the question begins to come to a focus. It says in verse 26 that they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, this is a test. This is a test for John. It's the moment when the genuineness or the authenticity of his call is now exposed and laid bare. How will he react when eyes are diverted away from him and toward Jesus? Is he going to give way to envy? Is he full of resentment? Is there a bitterness or a competitiveness or a a frustration that will begin to emerge in his heart on account of the fact that he is becoming more obscure? And yet what you see here is he is totally at peace. He's happy, actually. He's, he's overjoyed 
at this particular moment in his life. And you have to ask the question, why? How, how is it possible to live a life of devotion to God and not make it about ourselves? That's what John teaches us here. How, in other words, are, is, it, is it possible to live a life that is of truly humble devotion? I don't think that there are, there, there are many questions that are more urgent than this, because if there is one disease that afflicts churches, especially in the West, if there is one disease that seems to undermine and undercut everything that we're seeking to do, it's the disease of, of a man-centered longing for glory and praise that, that totally undermines the integrity of who we are as God's people. How can we practice humble devotion? And what John tells us, shows us here is, for, is a number of things. Here's the first thing. The humble devotion that he, he lived sprang from gratitude or thankfulness. Thankfulness. That you can only destroy the entitlement which corrupts our hearts through gratitude to God. Listen to how he puts it here in verse 27 and the first statement he makes. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, where does, ask this question, to understand what John's saying, ask this question, where does the desire for recognition and honor emerge from in our lives? It's not just obviously within the context of church, it's in any, any dimension of your life. Where does the desire, the craving, the longing for recognition and honor come from? And the, the sense that you, you ought to have it. Of course, the answer is it always emerges from a sense within us of some kind of superiority. That can be inherent superiority or earned superiority. But what I mean by that is this. If there's an inherent superiority, it's the kind of superiority that, that grows from the opportunities and the privileges of your upbringing. And of course, in, in the UK, it's, we've had a centuries-old battle with this because of the class system, that there is, there is a sense in which we are, we are told our position in society, even from birth. And then, of course, we're put through the opportunities of the various kind of channels and schooling and education opportunities that arise out of that, that confirm your inherent worth if you happen to belong to the upper echelons of society. There can be an inherent superiority that gives birth to the entitlement that says, I belong here, and I belong in the place where people recognize and honor me. And of course, the other side to that is that we can develop a sense of unearned superiority. And we describe people, you know, very proudly wear the label of being a self-made man. You know, I came from nothing. And look at me now. Do you know that the majority of Britons identify as working class? Even if they grow up with, you know, two cars on the driveway and a widescreen telly and all the rest of it. They, they identify as working class. Why? Because it, it, it changes the narrative of your life. It says, I came from nothing. And the fact that I drive a Jaguar now just tells you how amazing I am. Because I'm a working class person and now look at me. And so it's interesting into the insight of the, of the nation, the human heart, isn't it, that most people identify that, well, that way. So whether it's an inherent sense of superiority or an earned sense of superiority, either way, many of us in the secret caverns of our hearts nurture a self-orientation that, that almost feels entitled to a certain positions, privileges, attention, admiration, praise, recognition, glory, honor. 
Now, if anyone could have felt entitled to this in, in a religious sense, it was John. He had an extraordinary call. Prophes- I, don't, I don't think there's anyone else in Scripture who actually um, could claim, apart from Jesus himself, could claim to have the kinds of privileges John had in terms of having prophecies made about him centuries earlier and being supernaturally born in the way he was. An extraordinary call, extraordinary devotion that he, he offered to God all through his life in terms of the Nazareth vow that we've been exploring. He lived differently from other people. He was different. He was separated out. He was distinguished from others. Every dinner he went to, there was an opportunity to differentiate himself from others by the way he ate, the things he did eat or didn't eat. And of course, along with that was his lifestyle of living in the wilderness. You know, this, he, was, he had an extraordinary life and he made amazing sacrifices in that life as well. The risks that he took to preach as boldly as he did. The passage we were looking at last week and how he, he, he would look people in the eye as he was preaching and describe them as a brood of vipers. He was a man who took risks and of course in the end it leads to his demise and that he calls out King Herod and ends up being decapitated on account of that. And so this is a man who from the very beginning of his life all the way to this point has lived an exceptional life. He was an outlier by any measure. And what does that do when you're different, when you're special, when you, when you in some way stand out from others? Well, what it does is it, it feeds, it can feed the entitlement that longs for recognition, that longs for attention, and loves the praise of man. And so the question arises, well, if John was facing that danger and I don't know, how many people have been ruined by success? If John faced that danger, how was he able to hold it so lightly? And it was from this understanding that everything he had was a gift, that all the privileges he enjoyed was a gift. A person cannot receive even one thing, he says, unless it's given him from heaven. This is the the laser-guided torpedo that can destroy pride in our lives of any kind, and especially religious pride. To state it negatively, it's saying that there is nothing in your life that you could claim was deserved or earned or distinguishes you as someone who's merited the recognition as a self-made person. There's nothing in your life that you could say that that's true of me. There was the controversy that blew up, I think about four or five years ago, when Forbes magazine um, recognized Kylie Jenner as the youngest self-made billionaire in the world at 21 years of age. Self-made billionaire. Just, just meditate on that description for a moment. Of course, it had nothing to do with the fact that she'd been on TV since she was about 10 or 11 years of age. And everyone you know, in, in the West knew, knows who she is and that there were unique opportunities that, that emerged for her. And, so, and they, they doubled down. You know, they, 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 they followed it up with another article explaining what they meant by self-made. And of course, because she wasn't given her billions of dollars, they said she's a self-made billionaire. Of course, it's... It's ludicrous when you think about it because she had unbelievable privileges growing up as she did um, in the particular connections and attention that she enjoyed. 
And the reason I mention this is because, friends, biblically speaking, there is nothing good in your life that you can claim is self-made. Nothing at all. Every, every good thing that you enjoy, every gift you possess, every opportunity that is open for you has been a gift of the grace of God. So you state that positively. All, all the wonderful things, the birth, the influences that are around you, the gifts and opportunities that have opened up for you, the spiritual desires that have awakened within you, everything is grace. It's all gift. It's all gift. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, friends, I, I, love, I love that verse because it, it, it uncovers the, the basic gospel dynamic of the Christian life. The gospel dynamic is this, that everything good that we have enjoyed in our lives, and especially the forgiveness that we've received in Christ and the sense of our righteousness in him, is because it's all a gift. And the gospel has the power, therefore, of humbling us by, by understanding that, that nothing is self-made or earned. It is all because of the bounteous, lavish generosity of the living God. And John was not under any delusion. He didn't look at himself and think, I earn this because of all my sacrifices and the hardship that I've endured over the years and the risks that I've taken. He didn't look at himself in that way. He just said, a person can't receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. And it means that you can hold the good things in life lightly and especially the praise and recognition of others. Here's the second thing. So alongside gratitude or thankfulness, John reveals for us self-knowledge, the importance of self-knowledge. And the way in which you can puncture your ego, the, 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 uh, the inflated ego that can emerge within your own heart, you can puncture it with a sober and accurate self-knowledge. Listen to how he describes himself here in verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. Now, John, John is, is such a penetrating thing here. He says he might easily have developed an overinflated view of himself because of all the praise and lavish admiration he was receiving from others. Because John was not just a once-in-a-generation man. He was a once-in-the-history-of-the-world type of character. A standout, exceptional man who experienced amazing success. And think about how that success could have ruined him. We've all witnessed how success, especially early in life, can destroy even the most gifted and humble people. How many you know, people have been successful in sports or in, in acting or in, in a, some kind of public arena, even pastors in churches who've received success and it's utterly destroyed their integrity. And, you know, so often such people spiral because, because of what happens to them in their own hearts. So what's the challenge for a man like John? The challenge is that having enjoyed amazing influence and power in his life and ministry, 
He is now being asked to play second fiddle to, to Jesus. And that might easily have contradicted his sense of self-worth, his ego. Think how easily, you know, I've over the years seen many, many times how a successful band, like a, a three or four band members, they reach the pinnacle of their celebrity. And then what happens in almost always, they fall apart because one or other members of the members thinks that they're better than the others and they want to launch out on their solo career because they don't want to share the glory with others anymore, especially if it's the drummer or if it's the bassist or something like that. They want to show how they are truly the glue that holds the thing together, the talented one, the gifted one. Well, think about how quickly you know, a political party can win a landslide victory under, under a gifted leader. But more often than not, you know, it's, they say it's not the opposition that wins elections, it's governments that lose them. Why? Because parties eat each other up. It's happening even now. As egos jostle for attention and need to be recognized and put into the limelight, how, how corrupted our hearts are. And what does John do to counter the ever-present temptation towards prideful corruption of his own inflated ego or the danger of an inflated ego? Well, he, he fosters an accurate view of himself, which is this double statement. On the one hand, he says, it's a denial. I am not the Christ. A liberating, refreshing, life-giving denial. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. So much Christian overzeal and overwork really springs from a desire to be the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. Just be free. It's not you. You're not the Savior of the world. Jesus is. I'm not the Christ, he says. And then he says, but I have been sent before him. So on the one hand, he's... His self-knowledge pulls his, his sense of who he is down. On the other hand, he knows he's not nothing because God's given him the dignity of a calling that he's willing to walk in and to live in. And I think that, doubled, that, 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 that twin sort of dynamic that's going on in what he says here, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, is wonderfully illuminating in terms of how we can understand our place in life and in the world. Too, too high a view of yourself and you demand the attention of others. Too low a view of yourself and you crave the attention of others to build up and bolster your sense of self-worth. And the scriptures just encourage you to a sober view of yourself. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, doesn't he? He says in Romans 12, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's saying, don't, don't overplay your importance in life. Don't, don't, don't diminish yourself to nothing either. You've got faith and God's given you gifts. Have a sober and accurate judgment on yourself and it'll help you be at peace in all circumstances. Again, this is something only the gospel can do to us and within us. Because at one and the same time, the gospel humbles us to the ground by telling us it's not of you, it's all Christ. 
Only Christ has lived a righteous life. Only Christ is worthy of attention and adulation and glory and praise. Only his life can bear that kind of scrutiny. Only Jesus is pure and good and holy. And we are as nothing before him. But at the same time, the gospel elevates you and says, but, but Christ loves you and he's given you dignity. And he's given you unique gifts and a unique calling. And he speaks to you and gifts to you with his Holy Spirit. And he gives you things to do with the life you have on earth. Not that he needs you, but that he has included you. And so the gospel, one and the same time, both humbles you to the ground, but also elevates you with a newfound sense of dignity. Because it's not a dignity based on your accomplishments. It's a dignity based on what he says about you. And that's true self-knowledge, friends. And that's the knowledge that John possessed about himself. That meant he could be relaxed in this situation. There's gratitude, there's self-knowledge. Here's a third thing that you see. I express it in terms of what he's able to celebrate. So John is able to dismantle selfish resentment that might have emerged in his life by celebrating the good that God was doing. Friends, if we could only understand this, so much of our misery in life would be undone. If we could celebrate the good that God is doing, our selfish orientation, our, our tendency towards resentment would, would vanish immediately. And this is exactly what he does here. Where does John's joy come from? Listen to what he says in verse 29. He says that the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride is the church. The bridegroom is Jesus. The one who has the bride, the people of God, he's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom is John himself, perhaps the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's happiness is dictated by what he celebrates. It's dictated by what he celebrates. Your happiness is dictated by what you celebrate also, by the way. Worth meditating on if you're unhappy. What is it that gives John his joy? It is not his popularity. That would make his joy contingent if his popularity diminished. So would his joy diminish. His joy is not dependent upon his success. That would mean that his joy would vanish if his success diminished. His joy is not dependent on the power, the influence, the impact, or the admiration that he is, is receiving from others. That's what the others assume when they come to him with the question, isn't it? When they come to him with this question, they say, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You can feel the pity in their concern for John's well-being and happiness. They're worried for John. What will happen to John? Will he be utterly destroyed by the fact that people are no longer interested in him? And John says, you've got it all wrong, friends. He begins to show us his heart here. And what does he say? He says two things. He says, it's not my wedding, and she's not my bride. Now listen to the, what, what I mean by this. It's not my wedding, he says. Think about how, this is such a powerful illustration, because it exposes our very human tendency to make anything, even the weddings of others, about ourselves. <laughs> you know, how many times have you received an invitation to a wedding, and the first thing you check is which parts of the wedding you were invited to? Is it, is it the ceremony and the reception, and then the evening do? Is it just a ceremony in the evening do? And if it's a ceremony in the evening do, you think, I'm not going to that. They just want me to fill up space in the pews during the service. And I don't, you know, if they're not going to give me food, then I am not going. 
Or, or you know, you, they, they set out the, the dress code. And they say, you know, you, we want you to wear flamingo pink at this wedding. And all you can think about is your frustration because clearly you don't own anything in that particular color. And therefore, it's, it's about you and your frustration rather than the celebration of the couple. How often we, or the gift list, of course, the gift list is always one because my wife and I always forget to buy a gift until 20 minutes before we're leaving the house. And then we scroll through the John Lewis gift list and all that's left is like two flannels and a fork or something like that. And you think, I don't want to give them flannels and a fork. It makes me look so ungenerous or, or, or stingy. And so, you know, we, we immediately turn what is about them to make it about us. Now, I think we've seen this when, when bridesmaids walk down the aisle. And there's a kind of just enjoying the radiance of the moment. Or the groomsmen who kind of wink at you on the way in thinking, I look good today. I look really good in my double-breasted suit and my, uh, my sockless displaying my ankles look, which is apparently is a modern thing. It's, and of course, all of this is deeply, deeply, deeply inappropriate, isn't it? A wedding is about the celebration of the glory of the couple, and all our thoughts from beginning to end very often are obsessed with ourselves. And John's saying, look, if I was interested in myself at this moment, I would be misunderstanding what life is about. It's, it's not about, this is not my wedding. This is about Jesus. And that's basically the bottom line for the Christian life, friend, and for your life. It is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about what you receive or don't receive. It's not about what you attain or do not attain. It's not about where you end up in life or what gets taken away from you. It is not about you. It's not your wedding. And then he says, she's not my bride. Gives you a shiver to think, doesn't it, of a best man secretly desiring and loving the bride, maybe flirting with her a little bit or whatever. And John's saying, that's how inappropriate it would be for me to actually care about this. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. How liberating for him to say, look, I'm not here to get attention. It's all about Christ. He's the bridegroom. And when that settles into your heart, you can celebrate the glory of Christ wherever he receives it, from whoever gives it to him. In whatever circumstance, if Jesus is being glorified and you, you are able to celebrate that, then you are happy in life. Because no longer is life about you, it's about him. And it is about him. That, lit, that is what life is about. The gospel can do that to you, friend. Because the gospel, unlike other faiths that center on me and my performance, the gospel centers on Christ and his accomplishments. It frees you from the internal gaze. As Jeremy put it earlier, the, the inward curve of our, our eyes. It's so interested in ourselves and our attainments and our entitlements. And it liberates you to look at Jesus and revel in his beauty and his singular worthiness. And finally... Worship. You kill self-love through the worship of someone who is so much more beautiful, so much more glorious, so much more worthy than ourselves. I 
Look, if there's one verse in the Bible that is worthy of memorization, and it won't take you long, this is it. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, for John, this is his biography at this point. At one stage in the life of the nation, John was the most luminous star in the sky. Captivating. Thousands being drawn to him. Gazing at him, interested in him. What a singular figure he was. He was the brightest star in the sky. But what happens to the stars when the sun just creeps over the horizon? The stars vanish, don't they? Because their brightness is as nothing compared to the brightness of the sun itself. And John's life from this point on is one of a rapid decrease and decline to, to his demise, his execution at the hands of Herod. He will disappear off the scene entirely with an early death. And friend, this is a perfect statement of the Christian's ideal posture. He must increase, I must decrease. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that all of our unhappiness in life, in some senses, is often related to our, our interest in ourselves. And so far as we're able to, to take our gaze off of ourselves and direct and divert our gaze to Jesus, our joy begins to reemerge and to grow again. We crave glory, we crave honor, we crave comfort, we crave recognition, we crave all kinds of things in life. And the Bible warns us so many times how temporary these sources of joy are. Think of, for example, of Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they'll soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The psalm goes on to describe how the unrighteous gain a standing in this world and how that can agitate and disturb your soul when you see it. And he says, don't worry, because every, every, all the good that they're enjoying in this life, it fades away just as quickly as they gained it. Now, it's foolish of us to know that about people outside and not see it with our own lives because we can just as easily gain joy from the things of this world. Self-worship always ends in despair because you're not the center of the story. And then it goes on, that same psalm, and says it gives us the answer to lasting joy. And it says in, in the fourth verse famously, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. In other words, when, when, when your happiness is centered upon the worship of the living God, his goodness, his grace, his glory, the permanence of those, of those things. If you're delighting yourself in God, the desires of your heart, the, the yearnings for satisfaction and happiness in life, they're satisfied because they're fixed on him. You, you move from temporary joys to permanent ones. Solid joys. If John had made his life about the attention and admiration of others, 
this would have been his breaking point, but it's not, because it was never about that. He was actually fixated upon the worship of Jesus, the groom. And I want to ask you, friend, is your life about him? Is your life about him to the extent that he has blinded you to yourself even? Is your life about the worship of Christ? So that whether he takes you high or he puts you down low, you're content in all situations and circumstances because it's not about you. It's about Jesus that is the heart of devotion. That is pure and humble devotion, the kinds of devotion that we need to grow in. May God do it in each of us. May we be people who are content in obscurity, content in hiddenness, content in humility, because Christ is everything.